I think the challenge you see with a lot of brands going quote unquote in-house is, and you just said it best, you're expecting everyone to know everything. You know, I've really taken this other mentality, which is why I think programmatic is so important as, as a technology infrastructure, um, is how do we outsmart the marketplace, not outspend it? I think we all deserve to be incredibly and fully transparent on everything that we buy. Hello and welcome to episode three, season two of The AdPod. Today I'm joined by Vinny Rinaldi. Vinny is the head of investment and activation at Wavemaker. I've known Vinny a number of years. We used to both work at Density Regis when I was in the UK and he was in the US. And today we're talking about programmatic. I can't believe it's taken me to season two to have this as one of the topics, given that's where I spent the majority of my career. But Vinny was the obvious choice. The reason being is Vinny has served in roles on the ad tech side, agency side and brand side. And whenever I see Vinny speak about programmatic and whenever I get a chance to chat to him, he has a very well-rounded view on what it actually means for brands. He's very good at seeing sort of behind all of the smoke and mirrors and sort of what the naysayers might say. So I really enjoyed this chat and I'm sure you'll find it super interesting. So all that leads me to say is, I hope you enjoy episode three, season two of The Ad Pod. Hey Vinny, welcome to The Ad Pod. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks for having me, Wayne. No, thanks for coming on. I know we've had this in the in the books for a while, but, but here we are. Um, here we are. I appreciate it. And for those, I guess for those, for those listening and who don't, who don't know you, would you mind giving like a quick intro to your career and then what you do now? Sure. Absolutely. So spent a lot of my career, you know, in, in various different roles um, around the ad tech space for quite a bit and working in, you know, early stage startups, you know, it was early in audience science. I was at, um, then I went to Adapt TV, where I think I really probably got my feet wet the most and learned the most about the programmatic space um, prior through acquisition and post acquisition by AOL. Um, spent some time at Google working on the double click product side of things and, and working through, you know, the early stages of DV360 and DFP coming together. Um, and then I kind of wanted to go back to the buy side and really learn, you know, the other side of the house and spent a few years at uh, Dentsu where we were introduced to each other, which was awesome. Um, and then I actually went to the client side and really went through an awesome experience transforming an iconic, you know, chocolate brand in the United States and really allowed them to start, you know, leveraging um, and, and really taking a look into what's beyond TV for them and how to really, you know, think about what this transformational ecosystem looks like. We live it every single day, but a lot of brands don't. And I think that was one of the most eye-opening experiences for my career. And, and frankly, it was just such a such an awesome experience for myself. And then, um, we uh, moved back to the area, moving from my wife's position, actually, and I actually worked a year at Amazon on the ed tech side of their sales team, but realized very quickly um, I really wasn't keen on going back to the sales side. I really enjoyed that buy side mentality, and it brought me to where I am today. So I right now am our uh, head of investment and activation across all of Wavemaker, part of the Group M family. 
and the way that we're structured and, and the way that my role operates is really just managing our clients spend in and out of every single channel. And that's inclusive of linear television, streaming television, all the way through to um, email marketing, whatever our clients are looking for really at the end of the day. So um, it's, it's, it's a demanding role to say the least. Um, there is what you realize, and I've talked to some mentors of mine in the past in, in the industry who have been in this role 20 years ago and it was all about TV. And now it's a thousand different vendors, inclusive of television and trying to really figure out where to, you know, place some dollars has definitely caused some challenges, but it's been a great experience. And, you know, I keep learning every day, which is my most important factor. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, um, so today we're talking about programmatic and your experience going from being like within ad tech companies, uh, to brand, to agency, you know, it's interesting how programmatic has sort of gone into all of those as opposed to just yes. being this as a sort of a siloed hidden away thing. Um, so yeah, really excited mm-hmm. to sort of touch on all those uh, aspects of your experience. Um, but I guess you no, know, a good place to start first is like, what is programmatic? I mean, you get asked that, I get asked all the time, but like, how, <laughs> how, how do you explain what programmatic is to like someone in your family? I've tried to so hard stop using the term programmatic just because (laughs) when we keep using it, everyone keeps putting it as line items on a media plan and it's not, it's technology. Um, The simplest way that I explain it, you know, my mom's like, I don't even know what you do. I, you know, when I talk about the technology side of it, I talk about pipes, um, connecting the buy and sell side, connecting one buyer to somebody who's selling something in its simplest form on the back end is a singular pipe that allows us to do that. Now, that pipe breaks off into a million web splinters into ad networks and data feeds and this, but in its simplest form, you're really connecting a buyer and a seller to, you know, purchase a good in its, you know, in a nature of somebody who doesn't understand media. Got you. Got you. Yeah, I'd agree with that one. And I mean, you've always been you know, in and around programmatic, either fully in or very close to it. But what is it about programmatic that you like? Oh, you know, it gets a lot of bad, a lot of bad press. Uh, what is it that you know you enjoy about programmatic? I think, and and it probably I've always enjoyed it. But I think what opened my eyes the most in this space, frankly, was the opportunity to work at a brand, the opportunity to see the true data sets that a brand owns. And when I say data sets, I don't mean audiences. And I think that's what we always get stuck in is, you know, what is that audience? It's not necessarily the audience. When I've got an entire data lake, an infrastructure of sales data by zip code, by market, like the power you can use with that data to fuel into a programmatic ecosystem to buy in real time, whether it's product on shelf or product off shelf, or it's innovative products only being in certain markets or certain gas stations versus other. There's so many use cases. And to me, when you start thinking about that, you really start bringing to life why media is an actual growth engine for your business and not just a means of doing business. We get so caught up in just spending media dollars to spend media dollars, just get as many reach points as possible and throw it everywhere versus why don't we take a step back? Maybe we don't need all those dollars. And I know everyone hates hearing that because it's like, oh my God, if we don't spend our money, what do we do? But, you know, I've really taken this other mentality, which is why I think programmatic is so important as, as a technology infrastructure um, is how do we outsmart the marketplace, not outspend it? 
And you think about Wall Street, you think about what they're able to do when they use data to the, at their fingertips, they buy, you know, they invest dollars across different ecosystems based on what they're reading in the data sets, in the insights that they're being provided through different various verticals, whether it's a steel vertical and energy vertical, but they're using that and then they're in real time buying those market, you know, supply and demand parts of the marketplace. That's where I think I get super excited about the future of what programmatic could be, the future of what media buying should be, because programmatic should be is every which way in a biddable environment. It's not just a channel. And I and I said that already, and I'm gonna say it, keep saying it throughout because we until we start telling everybody that, you know, programmatic still gets put on a line item mm. in a media plan or in a flow chart. And it shouldn't be, in my opinion, outside of sponsorship deals or big integrations, all media should be bought through technology. Mm. Because then you have the ability to outsmart, you have the ability to use data to address every impression versus saying it's just addressable media. Let's be really smart about how we go to market with your dollars as a brand. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just nodding my head aggressively at everything <laughs> you're saying, because um, I'm fully aligned. And sometimes, you know, you'll read the trade press from the naysayers who think programmatic is just this uh, funnel of money that goes to vendors who shouldn't be getting it and it doesn't actually work. But I know- Parts of it is, that's true. You know, it's fair parts of it to say that, but it's not all, it's not fair to bring the whole terminology into this bucket of hate and this bucket of bad and, and really, you know, I think there's too much opportunity to fix those problems. Yeah, yeah. And I know you talk a lot about, you just already mentioned around using kind of advertising for growth for brands and, you know, trying to outsmart rather than outspend. How does programmatic sort of specifically do that? Because I know you've been in companies which were heavy TV buyers or brands you've worked with, which really relied on traditional media. Programmatic's kind of, well, now it's converging, but, you know, initially very digital. How, how, do you, how do you actually go about doing that? I think it goes back to, you know, when you think about the world of connectivity right now, or, or I think the new flashy word that we are all using this year is interoperability. You know, the ability to connect technologies together, to use it, data infrastructure at its core, you know, as I go back to just thinking about sales data as a business, those are the things that should be feeding even your media planning ecosystem. When you start thinking about where my dollars are being consumed or, or where my dollars are being purchased, you know, where my products being purchased, where the dollars flow from, we need to start using the different mediums of data to our advantage as a brand. Brands all do, but every brand is different. I'm using it from a lens from a CPG ecosystem. There, where a product could be, that I, that I worked on was literally, could be purchased, consumed, and then purchased again within two minutes and just go through the cycle. And that's what's interesting about certain products. But if we take a full step back, the problem is as media goes and, and our ecosystem goes, media buyers, we're not putting the lens of what the business needs are. We're just immediately saying, this is what media needs. Well, if you take a full step back and say, well, what is your business objective? How do I then work backwards from that to create a media strategy? And that's where I think data and technology can fuel each other to move from one screen to another to follow that consumer trend. So what I mean by that is, you know, let's just say every brand's goal is to grow sales, period, end of story. Okay, well, how do you do that? You need to steal share from your competition to grow sales. 
You need to reach new people. You need to reach your competitive set. So how do you start using data and technology to really put your dollars smartly into the marketplace? Going back to the outsmart, not outspend and start thinking through, everyone thinks retention and acquisition needs to be based on audiences. And it does, but you can use different data to really understand your core audience and your core consumer, where, they're, where they are and how to build and grow your household penetration. By doing that, you are in theory driving sales. If you could end the year and say, my household penetration was up 2%, I could almost guarantee that your sales grew at 2% or greater based on just reaching and building the awareness of your products. And that's the benefit of technology now. TV doesn't do that anymore. It can't. There's no supply because there's no eyeballs. The demand is through the roof because of pricing, not because it's where people are consuming a lot of content. I thought the numbers of Sunday Super Bowl were, were staggering. There's a ton that was consumed. All of it was consumed on that big screen. But to see it go from, I think it was 3 million households last year to now almost 12 million homes consuming Super Bowl through streaming, that is a huge signal of change. Now, yes, there was still 99 million homes that consumed it through television, through linear. Um, but again, that growth trajectory is only going to keep getting bigger. You're going to continue to see the linear decline, but the streaming uptick. So when we when we we need to stop talking about them like they're two different things. It goes back to like seeing as programmatic. It's still on the same screen. A screen is a screen. It's sight, sound, and motion. Our consumption habits may be changing, but we need to stop thinking about it as how I buy it versus how it's being consumed. And I think that's the shift we're seeing. And when we think about how it's being consumed, it's at it's prime time at your fingertips at all times. And the best way to in, 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 enter your brand or enhance the experience is to use data and technology to deliver that message in that real-time moment. And that to me is where when I talk to advertisers today, when I've been in-house at a brand and talk through it, like that's why programmatic and technology is gonna make media a growth engine for your business and not just a dollar being spent yeah and i mean what role do you think kind of creative and the product play because sometimes you know when i see people talking around data and tech and how you can be a, a effective grow sales the 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 counter argument would be well it only is as good as the creative you have so how do you sort of see those two marrying together to drive growth or how does that kind of work in practice i guess I still think data should inform your creative strategy as well. It shouldn't just be focused on how you buy media. The data you, you, you know, really consume from a purchase-based perspective, from a media consumption habits perspective, should start informing what your creative direction should be. But I do agree, I, and having worked at, at a large brand, creative is very key. Now, again, every product is different. I, I will always say that, but... You could sell chocolate in six seconds. Doesn't need to be a lot of words. Doesn't need to be a lot of nuances there. Like if you make a really ooey gooey s'more smush creative, like people are going to be like, oh, that looks awesome. And you don't even need to say much. But you go the other way and say, well, you know, you think about the Super Bowl ads. Creative was incredibly important. One of the best things, and not to to only talk about the things that I've worked on because I also think there was some great um, ads out there that we, you know, as, as group M we didn't touch, but Wavemaker's client Coinbase clearly blew up the internet and blew up 
the Super Bowl with their ad. And at the end of the day, was it the most creative, aspiring ad that ever? No, but it enticed everybody because nobody knew what it was. And it was, everyone got so entrenched in it and they had to find out more. So to me, it wasn't, they created just an easy Pong game, but it was the QR code. So you're bringing data, merging it with a creative asset and putting it on a big screen. And they are the only ones throughout the Super Bowl that probably could measure the in real time impact that that ad made on the most watched game in recent times across all screens. Yeah, that was that was an amazing moment because I was watching yeah. it with friends and the ad comes on yeah. and we're like, oh no, it's still on this QR code. <laughs> Scanned <laughs> yeah. it and then it was like, that's cool. And after 15 seconds, it was like, wait, what is this? Wait. And then finally people figured it out. And within a minute, over 20 million people went to their website and it crashed out. Yeah, so yeah, they went from number 186 in the app store to number two. Yeah, it's incredible. And so things like that, you, you took a moment of creative and data and analytics and merged them together in the biggest day of the year on TV, on, on the screen, and you were able to measure the impact almost instantaneously. It's, that's, that to me is going to become probably a very unique case study where you see the merging to your point of bringing creative data and technology all into one. Yeah, and I think, you know, I whenever I hear the counter argument of, oh, these data and technology people don't understand creative or like creative people don't understand data and tech. It's like, no one can understand everything to the level <laughs> exactly. you need to understand it. So I think the key, as you say, is bringing it all together. That's where I think yep. you have the, you have the wins as a, as advertisers. Yep. Every team on that execution worked hand in hand on figuring it out from us media buyers to the creative agency, you know, they use Accenture and Droga 5 there and, and the brand, it was, everyone was in lockstep trying to figure out the best use case. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And that, that actually brings me on to sort of uh, the next kind of uh, chain of discussion is around what you think advertisers should be doing themselves versus their agencies. And I know you've, I know you've worked, you said in-house just a minute ago, you obviously now work at agency, you've worked at agency previously, you've worked at ad tech, um, how do you, in that question, what should advertisers be controlling themselves? How do you go about answering that? It's like the, the million dollar question that nobody seems to have been able to, to respond properly to over the last six years. <laughs> Obviously it all started, you know, with the AMA report when we started figuring out the non-transparency models of programmatic ecosystems, which rightfully so I think blew up in everybody's face. And it was time everyone started taking a closer look. I think the challenge you see with a lot of brands going quote unquote in-house is, and you just said it best, you're expecting everyone to know everything. And it's really hard to have five people in-house in, uh, you know, necessarily, not necessarily New York City or San Francisco and LA or where there's Chicago and, and some of the bigger areas you be more of the middle of the country and you're expecting five to 10 people on your in-house team to know everything. And it's really hard to know everything. And you start running into those hiccups and those nuances and you're like, crap, I need more help or I need more expertise or I need this. And then you, know, you start hiring consultants, but is that necessarily the right move? And I think it, there are parts, yes. And there are parts, no. You, know, you think about how many people, I don't think, you need a lot of people to execute a campaign. And I don't think enough goes into the thinking of trafficking 
And I always start trafficking first because it's the infrastructure of how an ad gets served on the internet. It's the infrastructure of how data gets collected on the internet. And we always forget about trafficking and ad operations. And to me, and this is, there's other ways I'm gonna talk about in-housing, but to me, that's one of the first steps that no one asks the question about in-housing. I'll just buy all my media. Well, how are you gonna get it served on the, on the screen or on the computer or wherever? Um, and I think that's, that's just one eye opener for me when brands think about that. But, you know, when I've sat in that seat, when I've consulted brands on, on really thinking about what it means to in-house, you know, even in my current role, we, I've talked to brands about it and, and, you know, as they're toying with the ideas of multiple things, I think we all deserve to be incredibly and fully transparent on everything that we buy. And I think if brands start taking ownerships of their technology contracts, their data contracts. Um, that to me is in-housing. They're in-housing the whereabouts and the know-all of everything that's happening in a media ecosystem. And I think that's great. Now, what they do with that is a different story. And I think there, when you in-house, there should be more discussions on how many data scientists can I bring in? What data infrastructure and architecture am I going to build as my own? Because all of that media data needs to connect outside to your business data that we talked about earlier. And if you don't have those pieces together, then what's the point of in-housing? Now, I think over time, if you do that right, that's probably the first phase of in-housing. If you do that really well and have enough people to have data sets that can then inform your planning cycles, your optimization tactics, et cetera, then you can start thinking about, is it right to put hands on keyboard buyers in-house? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think you can ask those questions until you have your own house in order. And I think that's where we, we swung the pendulum all the way one way to say, oh, we're all going in-house. And now you see brands coming back this way to say, maybe just parts of it, because I can't do all of this and I can't do, and I get it. Um, so I think that's where, you know, we, we as an industry need to start asking the right questions about what it means to in-house. Um, I just, I, 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 I don't think enough people put a, a focus on the data architecture of what it means to buy media. And that's the most important aspect of doing it well. Yeah, yeah, I just agree. And I think, I think in-housing was really missold to brands. It was sold to them five years ago because of you know, those reports that everyone was seeing. But then what's happened over time is, as you say, the work out is actually really difficult. And um, just A, it's difficult in practice. B, it's difficult to get the right people and enough of them in one brand in a location. And I've, I've seen so many people that I know have gone brand side and come back, or some people feel isolated. They don't know how they can stay up to date because they're just focused on one brand, one thing. Like there's a real value in uh, the culture that agencies and others have. Um, Definitely. And plus the ability to switch in and out resource based on if someone's on annual leave or off ill for maternity leave, whatever Perhaps. it might be. Um, and I think now the smart brands get that um yeah and, I think, and also agencies as well have also adapted to these models also where previously they probably were like well all or nothing whereas now it's you know right table stakes to have a you know a, 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 i guess a hybrid model i think another big part of it was you know not only the transparency piece but you then also look at it from a cost savings perspective and when you deal with 
procurement teams who are maybe not as well versed in the media ecosystem, which is often, it happens, and it's not their job to be expertise yet in the in media ecosystem. But, you know, if, if you say, okay, well, I'm going to cut, you know, I'm spending all this money in programmatic, my fees 10%, it's five to $7 million this year. I'm going to hire three people for under a million dollars all in. And I just saved $7 million for the business, $6 million for the business. And they look like heroes, but those three people can't handle the workload of launching 22 brands on January 1st with trafficking sheets and campaign setups and platforms. It's not just programmatic platforms, it's Facebook, it's in, Facebook and Instagram, it's Snapchat, like there's everything you have to think about. Um, and I think that's where, again, to your point, we're starting to peel back a little bit and say, well, hold on, there's a lot here. Let's pick and choose where we can be dangerous. Um, and, and where it makes the most sense to get our, our, our feet wet. But again, I still go back to, if you don't have your infrastructure in your house in order, you can't be an in-house media buyer. Yeah, with you, with you. Um, so just, I just want to move on slightly to, to back to sort of media in general. Um, and there was a, a Twitter thread somewhat recently, which was talking about low quality, quality inventory. And you tweeted saying, uh, media consultants and auditors are the biggest problem facing the industry. I've seen you say that a couple of times in different threads. Um, do you mind like elaborating on what you mean sure. by that? And and <laughs> without getting the whole world thrown at me in that sense, it's not it's not a bad thing. I think what we all need to collectively come together and realize is that the way that this has been a kind of pitch of palooza around two the last twelve to eighteen months. I feel like. And there's been a lot of pitches. Most of the bigger, you know, more legacy brands are starting pitches out with, here's a pricing exercise. And you get this Excel document with 30 tabs for every channel, inclusive of biddable, to submit your lowest price. So when I say that they're hurting the industry the most, that's why, because that's not really the way we should be looking at media. Media shouldn't be how low can you go. And that's, that's been the historical nature of pitches. And, and, and really what I mean by that is, you know, it, it happens more so in the TV space. Let's, let's just get that out of the way. It does. What I think the understanding that's not really getting across because of, of the way these, these exercises have been properly done is when, when a brand has a base, in a linear television buy. That is the brand's number. That's not the agency's number in any capacity. So if I'm at, let's just, I'm gonna use easy numbers, but I have $5 in, in linear in 2021. We, we enter the marketplace in 22 with a, you know, on the base, we're looking at a plus 15 or plus 20 on the base. For that's how this year went. Let's, let's put that out there. So now you're looking at if it's plus 20, we're at $6. I beat the marketplace if I get you plus 15, that's plus 20. But you're still paying more than your base, but that's your base. So now we're looking at these templates and saying, okay, your base, we don't even know, we're guessing it's around $5 because they don't give that to you. And then you've got competitors that of, of ourselves and everyone jumping into these templates saying, I'm going to get you 200% lower which is impossible, 200% lower on a plus marketplace, which for anybody to think that's 
feasible, I think needs to really just understand supply and demand and true economics and really take a step back. And so when we go into these pitches, a lot of us, we're as guilty as everyone. We all are as just guilty of writing whatever we think we can achieve, even though we don't know if we can achieve it or not. And we put money against it. We have you know a bonus and or a malice based on achieving certain rates. And that's where I think we get forced to do those. It's not our decisions. It's our decisions to put our best foot forward and do as best as we can to get to where they need. But we're being forced when we put our best foot forward and then get told you're 100% greater than everybody else or you're 30% greater than everybody else. So it's, then it's like, okay, well, okay, we, I don't think we can achieve this. So what do we do? Do you go lower and just try and make it up somewhere else? And that's why I say you're worse off starting a pitch on here's a temp, a pricing exercise, which is what a lot of, which is a lot of what we're seeing. Um, and again, a lot of it sits in the linear space, but when you also have a tab to fill out a pricing exercise for biddable, again, it's biddable. It, there's no, there's no floor. There's no high, like we don't know what's going to happen because it's in real time. And then you get back into the corner saying, well, you put this on a sheet, but you're achieving this. And it's like, well, it's Q4, it's Christmas. Everyone's buying or it's a political season. Everybody's buying, you know, and those are the things that are hard to, to gauge on, on such a templatized thing that it makes it really difficult. What I've seen work for a very small number of brands is actually put their money where their mouth is, offer up some dollars to the competing agencies and say, go to market, go buy me a bunch of stuff, go perform, and then set the proper learning agenda, the proper KPIs, and then look at the actual outcome. And that to me is where, if, I, if I'm sitting in the, the media consultant seats where they're coming in and running a lot of these pitches, that's a better opportunity to really see who's good and who's not. Because it's not about just pricing. Everybody can get pricing. It's about the people and how they can use data properly to access and really beat the market to create value for you. Value is not CPMs. Value is outcomes. Value is if your goal is to grow household penetration, great. Who is going to control frequency the best to grow my reach to the right consumers and grow my business. That's where our pitch world should head because then it gives everyone an opportunity and even playing field to show that they're people. We've hired the best people to execute on your strategy or your business goals. And I think that's where I would love to see go. It's gonna take a long time to get there. Um, but it just, when we start price first, we immediately all start just putting that as our only indicator of success. Yeah, and it must be just so frustrating when a pitch starts that way. Like, it's almost demoralizing because you're like, whatever we do, however great work we do, how it'll all come down to price as opposed oh. to, you know, like testing and learning, innovation, strategically new things. And um, yeah. I mean, we're fortunate. We've run a, a handful of pitches ourselves. And thankfully, the clients that we've done it with have never been that price. I mean, somewhat price sensitive, but it's never started with price. It should play a role. There's like it's not like just throw it out the window, but it shouldn't be the number one indicator of what is successful. It can't be. I mean, price is an output. Yeah. It's the it's the yeah. output of like about a hundred other things, even more. And um, I do think collectively, like previously, you know, you'd find an agency who would take whatever you're asking if you were a brand. I think now the agencies are like, well, we're just not going to do it anymore. This isn't this isn't good for you. You shouldn't you shouldn't be doing this. Yep. And we've seen some quite uh, well-publicized 
agencies dropping out some big pitches because they're very price focused pitches. We've done a few of them. We've dropped out of quite a few for that reason alone. You know, it's because we're trying to put our focus onto who we've hired, our people, the technology that we're creating on the back end, and, and just going to market smarter. Mm. But it's again, it's it's this balance. You know, there, there's a lot that's on one side and some on the other. So how do you find and strike that right balance is, is definitely one of the harder things right now. Yeah. And I think just, just talking about like um, media in general and content, I mean, it's now increasingly fragmented. So you spoke about streaming versus linear, but think about previously it was digital and radio, uh, TV and radio. Now it's, you know, a hundred plus digital channels, whatever it's these days. Um, you need smart people and processes to like work out how to buy, when to buy um i think from what you see in your role you know with all that fragmentation how do you construct deals and then second to that how are broadcasters and publishers also thinking about their sort of sales strategy as well oh that's a pandora's box question there (laughs) there's a lot to unpack just because i don't think anybody's fully figured it out um we we are trying you know, feverishly to put in the right investment strategy that, again, when you go into upfronts, upfronts still happen in the nature that they happen. But you're seeing more and more of the consumption moving from linear to digital on those same broadcast partners and, and media conglomerates that we're all working with. So we're trying to reframe and structure the deals around, you know, what can I move into a platform-based world? But when I do that, what control are you going to give me? And that's been, I would say, one of my bigger pushes with some of our partners, some of the some of the broadcast partners. As you think about it, most of your TV deals, as, as we're seeing supply diminish, they're pushing more into, well, then we'll support you on Peacock or Tubi or Pluto and all of the, the new streaming platforms and environments that they've created, you know, accessible content at everybody's fingertips too. Great, we want to be there, no doubt. But what we're seeing is, when, you, when those dollars are forced as part of our overall buy, we don't have any control of those dollars either. So you kind of just throw it out there, I'm gonna spend $10 million and whatever I get, I get. Versus, you know, my hope in, in some of the strategies that we've been talking about is pushing everything into a programmatic first environment, really so to have slight decision-making, not all decision-making. You know, I, I use an example often is, I'm not trying to find the family of five in Buffalo, New York, who loves to bake and ride bikes on weekends. And I'm not looking for that. I'm actually just looking to control the frequency of the user experience. And if you can do that, you can actually extend your reach more. Now, by doing that, you're also limiting all those household frequencies that they were delivering and that the media companies were sending you through the bid stream that they can then send to somebody else and actually make more revenue off of. So in the end, we all, we all win because I'm growing my reach by buying the right homes and those extra frequency points that I don't need anymore, you're now delivering to somebody else and growing your rev share across more advertisers versus just the same sum because they're forcing you know, some sort of guaranteed reach point. And I think if we go that route and start thinking in a little bit more, that's where we need to start thinking about how we structure our deals so that we both win, everybody wins, advertisers and, and agencies get more control publishers get more revenue because they can sell to more people. Um, and I think that's where you know we're hoping to start moving towards. It's still the technology ecosystem is hard. It's fragmented. You've got, as a media owner, 
You know, I'll, I'll use Disney as an example, ESPN, ABC, FX, all that. They're the ones who own the content. They then serve out that content into a plethora of devices, a Chromecast, a Roku, a, a Samsung, a TCL. You know, you've got so many avenues to distribute, but at the end of the day, it's one content stream and it's one household consuming it, whatever device it's on. So, so if we remove the middle, we're not, not remove them completely from the equation, we still need the TVs and stuff, but if you take them out of the equation from understanding control, and you start working more on the sell side of how they're distributing content out, whether it is on a Roku device or a Chromecast or a Fire TV, it doesn't matter. They should allow us to control better. And again, it goes back to if they're controlling frequency on distribution, they can then make more revenue on all of their sales. And then we win because we're not creating a bad user experience because the same four ads are on every streaming content that you go to. Um, so it's, it's, it's really hard and for us to structure deals properly has been cumbersome because there's just so many distribution partners that, that end up with the same content, but it'll get, it, it has to get figured out. I don't know when, um, but you know, if I look at my six and a half, almost seven year old every day, she, when she consumes content, she's watching YouTube on our TV. She's watching Disney Plus on her TV. Like she's just flying through apps on her TV. She's not watching cable or anything stream linearly. And I think that's just the onset. This generation, you know, for, for myself, for watching my children, that generation growing up, I don't think we'll ever watch live TV unless it's a sporting environment. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I just find the way, as you say, the way that content gets distributed now in so many different ways. And then as an advertiser, you want to reach the eyeballs who are watching that content, but at the same time, you do want to manage your frequency and you can't, you don't always know if it's the users going in and out of different apps or different environments. Right. And as an advertiser to, to have a solid reach strategy with frequency in a very fragmented <laughs> world. I mean, it's like, Super, consoli super consolidation is is important there on how you buy it which is why let's bring this all back together programmatic and demand side platform technology is really imperative to being able to control as many elements in a holistic buy as you can mm. when you start buying one off with each of these partners you're not controlling anything and it mm. makes it really hard and now they're all going the route of becoming their own yeah which is making it even harder yeah i feel like the their business strategy is not in line with the advertiser strategy, like the whole wall garden approach in general. I mean, I'm We've not sure. We've complained about it, but now everyone's creating one again. Yeah, I'm just not sure how long it will live. But I mean, we could do a whole another podcast on wall gardens and maybe. <laughs> yes, we can. Season three. Um, <laughs> we can. But I guess, you know, just to bring this back to programmatic, um, 10 years' time, you've got your sort of crystal ball in front of you, 10 years' time. Does programmatic exist? Uh, if yes, what is it doing? If no, why? Yes, hands down. But it's just not programmatic anymore. It's the infrastructure to how we buy media. Period. End of story. Like I, the fact that people think it's just going to go away is crazy. It shouldn't. The technology aspect of what programmatic created is should be how we execute and buy every impression in the marketplace. Except again, I go back to the sponsorships, the bigger deals. I get those are fantastic integrations for some of our brands. It gets their brand out there, but anything else, we should be able to have controllable PMPs 
whether it's first look inventory, you know, open marketplace, all of it should be available. We just need to be smarter about how we place those dollars. Excellent. And then just to round off in this season, we've got a quick fire round. So I'm going to throw a couple of company names, a couple of things at you. And in a couple of words, I'd love to get your immediate thoughts. Um, so, so the first one, uh, the trade desk. Open internet and interoperability. In housing. Data architecture and infrastructure. Connected TV. The future. And ad networks. In two words, <laughs> um, <laughs> long tail. Long tail. There we go. Um, this has been an awesome <laughs> chat. Thanks, Vinny. I know you're. Yeah. I know you're active on social. I always engage in lots of your tweets and LinkedIn posts. Uh, if people listening wanted to find out more about kind of your views and news, where's the best place to find you? Probably both Twitter and LinkedIn. It's the only two social platforms I have. I don't use anything else. Um, and when I do use those, those views are, are usually my own. Um, <laughs> not necessarily in line with, you know, my current, you know, where I'm working. But, you know, it's just, you know, trying to be that voice with yourself and many others of, you know, changing the way that we think about the internet and the ecosystem that we buy media in. We need awesome. to. We're, we're almost there. We're getting there. We're chipping away. I'm totally with you. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Billy. I really Thank appreciate you coming me. on. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for another episode of the AdPod. I hope you enjoyed that. Vinny has this brilliant ability to go deep in the technical understanding of the industry, but to simplify it back to what it really means. So I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I really hope you did too. So until next time, stay safe. <laughs>